This is Peter Holmstrom, and if you're a fan of Star Trek, check out my new book, The Center Seat, 55 Years of Trek, the official companion book to the hit documentary series by the Nacelle Company, which chronicles the history of Star Trek from the early days of Lucille Ball and Desilu all the way to, through the end of Enterprise, featuring new and expanded interviews from Trek legends such as David Gerald, Rick Berman, Ronald D. Moore, Harold Livingston, Walter Koenig, Kate Mulgrew, Nana Visitor, Robert Picardo, Tim Russ, Brandon Braga, Lisa Klink, and of course, in Glorious Trexpert's own, Mark A. Altman, as well as the final interviews from Kirstie Alley and Leonard Nimoy, in addition to so, so many more. Pick up The Center Seat, 55 Years of Trek, available today in hardcover and digital, wherever books are sold. A technological nightmare. I'm only getting one pattern. Merges Tuvok and Neelix together. They're gone. But when the two become one... What point did he become an individual and not a transporter accident? The result is unpredictable. Are Neelix and Tuvok inside of you? And the only option left... We've created a monster. ...is unacceptable. Are you going to stand by and do nothing while she commits murder? On the next Star Trek Voyager... Welcome to the Trexperts Briefing Room, where industry professionals curate audio commentaries with creators, creatives, and diehard fans of the Star Trek franchise. My name is Peter Holmstrom. I'm a screenwriter and author here in Los Angeles, and I have a new oral history of Star Trek book out called The Center Seat, 55 Years of Trek. Please go pick it up right now. And I'm Lisa Klink. I wrote for Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Voyager, and I will be on the picket lines until the writers get a fair deal. Uh, guys, today is the day. We are finally addressing one of the most hot-button Star Trek episodes of all time. It's an episode that even addressed, even got addressed by members of Congress once over uh, <laughs> over over the Twitter sphere. Um, yes, we are talking today about two Vicks. Uh, joining us here, we have two very special guests. They're both returning uh, guests to the show. And uh, I think probably the best guests to have for such a conversation. They are both both philosophers, and that's that's, <laughs> that's what this is all about. Uh, first up, Kevin Decker, uh, professor up at uh, Eastern Washington University, right, yeah. and uh, editor co-author of Star Trek and Philosophy. Kevin, thanks. Thank for Thank you. Show. It's great to be back. And then in the other corner, um, <laughs> Jason Eberl, uh, coming in from uh, also editor co-author Star Trek and Philosophy. Jason, thanks for being back, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, guys, you know, Tuvix, my God. <laughs> I mean, maybe I should ask Lisa, first of all, like, because you were on staff at the time. Like, mm -hmm. good Lord. I mean, did, could, did, was there any sense in the writer's room that, like, this was going to turn into a 20-plus year debate about... Uh, has he Not this? quite that long, no. I mean, it, you know, obviously, when we first heard the premise, you know, it sounds kind of goofy. You know, you take Tuvok, you take Neelix, you mix them together. You know, I mean, it sounds like it's all going to be kind of kind of a laugh. And, you know, we kind of started out that way in, in the writer's room when we were discussing it. But then, of course, we got to the end and it's like, well, what do we do with them? And then, of course, we started breaking into the same debate that people are still talking about now. You know, what do you do? Because, you know, we would have to basically kill this guy. 
Um, so yeah, we we have been through this debate, but we did not anticipate that it would be quite as as hot a topic as yeah. it has been. I guess maybe to to recap for the listeners out there. Um, so this episode involves uh, your classic transporter accident. <laughs> um, uh, in this situation, it's Tuvok and Neelix, who at this period of time in in Voyager were were. I don't want to say enemies, but like Tuvok Opposites. really didn't like Neelix. Oil yeah. and water. Oil and water. <laughs> yes. And, yes. And, uh, and they came back carrying a plant, I believe. And that plant had special uh, uh, powers. That's not the right word. Special, <laughs> special quality to the plant that, that somehow caused them all to fuse together. And not just in um, body, but also in mind and soul. And so you have this new character that comes around. And rather than... Um, uh, uh, having the episode be solely about that problem, um, they, they very smartly and very, very um, uh, wisely decide to, to focus in on Tuvix as a new character. And you really make them, uh, the characters and the audience sympathize with yeah. this character and believe that like, maybe this is just what it's going to yeah. be now. Um, and then at the end, they discover a cure and Janeway makes the hard call to say, well, let's instigate the cure. And we'll bring back Tuvok and Neelix and effectively kill off the character of Tuvix. Um, this has uh, created a, a lot of debate over the years. Some people claim that Janeway was saving her two uh, uh, friends, her two crewmates in uh, Tuvok and Neelix. Other people say she committed cold-blooded murder by killing off uh, the character of Tuvix. Um, and, and around and around it goes from there. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess maybe like a fun way to do it. Let's 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 take a poll before we even start the episode. Like, where do we where do we fall? And maybe by the end of the episode, we'll do another poll and see if see if any of our minds have changed about it. So, uh, uh, Jason, how about starting with you? Do you think Janeway was justified or or not justified in in what she did at the end of the episode? Uh, I've always been of the mind that she's not justified. Uh, mm-hmm. When I when I first saw the episode, saw it aired. Obviously, I understand from a production standpoint why you can't kill off <laughs> two of your main characters, um, but um, but no, I it was the first time that a, a Starfleet captain did something where I was like flatly they made the wrong call. Like wow. Starfleet captain made controversial calls, but that was the first time. And of course, thankfully though, you know, it didn't turn me off completely from the Janeway character. You know, <laughs> I still love Janeway, still see an amazing captain, but even the most amazing captains make bad decisions and i do just want to interject real quick to give a big shout out to tom wright who portrayed yes. Tuvix, yes. who really brought that he, he made the pathos work with that character. yes yeah. I, I think it's it's, it's uh, super important to notice how this could have gone south very quickly with the two characters combined it could have been unintentionally comedic but i think uh, again tom wright uh, does a superior performance uh, and really carries this episode Absolutely. Um, but uh, Kevin, where, where do you? Well, I, I think I'm going to have to to agree with Jason uh, on this. Um, I, I had uh, the anti Janeway reaction then. I do situate this episode with a bunch of other Janeway hard decision episodes, especially from the first couple of seasons. And, you know, I mean, ethically, I think what's what's interesting about this, uh, about the whole premise of Voyager is that it situates uh, the crew's decisions uh, in, in kind of a Hobbesian environment in which there is no longer a kind of governing force uh, that, that Starfleet uh, captains can run up against in terms of making decisions or 
not following orders. So it's, it's kind of a free for all situation, right? And so the goal is to combine Maquis and Starfleet morality, but to still go forward and do things ethically. But um, there is this sense, right, that she's kind of making law here, uh, you know, yeah. hundreds of thousands of light years away from the moral center for her. Yeah, she's in what um, philosopher uh, Giorgio Agamben calls a state of exception. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A basic you know, situation where our standard societal rules, either you said the rule, you have cause to suspend the rule altogether, or you might, the rule still stays valid, but you apply it in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, this got thrown a lot around, a, a lot. This got, idea got thrown around a lot during the pandemic by bioethicists mm-hmm. uh, in terms of like making triage decisions and so on. But yeah, we can get more into that later. <laughs> uh, Lisa, how about for you? Uh, well, I'm going to have the opposing opinion here. I think Janeway did the right thing. Uh, I think that, uh, yes, as in, in true Vulcan fashion, I think the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. And saving two lives is better than saving one life. There you go. I, 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 it's apparently writers against philosophers here. I'm also, <laughs> also going to be voting with Lisa. I think uh, Janeway made a tough call, but it was the right call. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll just we'll get right on into it here and uh, see how see how the episode yeah. plays for us. So, listeners out there, we are watching uh, season two, episode twenty four of Star Trek Voyager, Tuvix. We're going to get into it here in three, two, one, engage. All right. I hope I hope Jason. No, this, yeah, this is, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say I hope Jason uh, will agree with me here. One of the nice things about being a philosopher is that you can always argue the opposite position. Hmm. You know, I mean, uh, principle of charity says you know give give the strongest opposing argument or the strongest version of the opposing argument as you can, and if you can knock that down, then your your claim is stronger. So. No, exactly right, uh, and and I think the popularity of this episode is precisely because it's not simply the case that even for those of us who think Janeway made the wrong yeah. call, it's not simply she made the wrong call. You know, she's a bad captain, therefore no, she made a call that she can justify to herself yeah. for like, you know the reasons that 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 both of you have already voiced, and I can yeah think of some other reasons that we can I'll bring up as we sort of get further into the episode. Yeah. Um, so no, I can see how she can justify the decision to herself. Um, and again, if one is a utilitarian style philosopher or ethicist, then yeah, as Lisa said, needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Um, and then and not only that, but the entire you know crew and their mission to get home so so no i could totally see the argument to, to justify i don't think it's um it's a simple this is absolutely she made the wrong decision anyone disagrees is you know hmm. you know wrong no it's not it's not simple like yeah. that similar to cisco in in, in the yeah. pale moonlight another yeah. fantastic episode of, yeah. of a captain or um archer in uh similitude uh an episode which i think is very similar ethically to this one I also uh, show ethics uh, in in contact uh, in context with this episode uh, from Next Generation, the one where Worf mm-hmm. uh, doesn't have a working spine anymore, because everybody in that episode right. is representing different views toward his disability and what to do about it, and everybody is perfect mm-hmm. is very reasonable, um, as you were saying, Jason. Um, you know, it, 
you, you, you can see four or five different ethical perspectives uh, in that episode, and each one is mostly defended fairly, fairly well, I think. Um, and again, this is what makes good Star Trek. Yeah. Absolutely. I was just thinking, um, was it Harry Truman who had the quote about he uh, wanted a one-hand economist because economists are always saying, well, on the one hand and then on the other <laughs> hand. And, and you could you say, you know, the, the, the ethereal search for a one-handed philosopher, they don't exist. <laughs> if anything, we're, we're like, is it Shiva who has like multi-arms? Multi-arms, <laughs> <Yeah>. yes. <laughs> Absolutely. I also wanted to point out sort of the significance of this very first scene between Tuvok and Neelix down on the planet that summarizes their whole relationship and has to kind of, so even if you've never seen the episode, you know, the series yeah. before you watch the two of them on the planet kind of, and, and you see their different personalities and that really sets up sort of the, the tension between them and yeah. that kind of gets incorporated here. And that, you know, I want to say on that note, you know, obviously, you know, television culture has changed a lot, even in Star Trek with series like Picard and Discovery are, you know, very, you know, much, you know, uh, serialized as opposed to episodic. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, Strange New Worlds has reversed that trend. And a lot of fans, are, including myself, are very welcoming of that. From a pedagogical perspective as a teacher, I do very much appreciate the 45-minute yeah. episode that I can, hmm. you know, screen in class. And the students can just either never seen any Star Trek they can get the whole encapsulated story. Yeah. So I do appreciate yeah. that. I have found that doing that and providing the, well, let's, let's face it. There's always some nerds in an audience who have never seen Star Trek before. And by nerds, right. I mean, you know, uncultured swine, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, if I provide them with uh, a sheet of people's, you know, uh, pictures and names and maybe their rank or whatever, um, then, then they're good to go. Um, it doesn't matter that they haven't seen the show before. It's very approachable, um, as you said, Jason, mm -hmm. with just a little prop. I just want to mention Jennifer Lean's name just popped up on the title card as Kess. And, uh, of course, her her function in this story is very important. And yes. when we get to the relevant scene, I'll, uh, I'll have some thoughts to share on that. But... You know, as I've been rewatching Voyagers, I, I mentioned before we started recording, I'm you know been uh, listening to uh, another podcast. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm allowed to say it on this podcast, but you know, yes, you are. Okay, so the Delta Flyers podcast right, <laughs> with Garrett Wong and, and Robbie Duncan McNeil, and um, and you know they often comment and and I share this sentiment of just how good Jennifer Lean uh, was on that show and how important Kess was as a character. Um, yeah, you know, I think some fans had the had a, either at the time or since had the attitude she's kind of was like kind of, kind of like the Wesley Crusher of Voyager, but she's not, she's not. And, and, and of no. course, nor is Wesley Crusher the Wesley Crusher of next gen. It's, <laughs> that's a, you know, caricature, yeah. but yeah. I love how uh, Kim here, his instant impulse yeah. is just to bust out a phaser. <laughs> yeah. It's like so aggressive. Well, he's thinking if he saves the ship, he might get promoted to lieutenant finally. Of course. Yeah. Okay. This is no, chance. That, that wouldn't do it. Because <laughs> there must always be an ensign, right? Yes. I do love how they like even augment the costume. Yeah. I, like, interesting. Uh, yeah. Costumes, those uh, them self-merged. Oh, she's not happy. Tess is not happy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course uh, not. But, you know, now she has a taller boyfriend. So. <laughs> uh, one, of the, one of the things I frequently wonder about is what is the 
tra transporter malfunction episode that is the least credible. And I mean, I think mm. you know, maybe mm. in, in the classic show, maybe that's where it belongs. But with this one, we have to imagine that not only the information that Neelix and Tuvok were reduced to when beaming up was somehow integrated in with each other, but that that was able to express itself genetically in a creature that didn't just like explode like in the motion picture, right? right? Where it's like, we got yes. back, didn't live long, you know? Yeah. <laughs> While this is a beautiful episode, it's, it's probably high on my list of, of unlikely transporter accidents. I, you know what though, well, I, sure. I still got to go with the uh, TNG season two episode where like it's not even an accident, but they just they realize they can solve a, a virus by just yeah. like re, you know, sending Pulaski yeah. back through right. the transporter and having her like use the the copy, right. I guess, that they right. saved from the previous transporter. Right. And I'm just like, well, you've just cured it yeah. in there. Uh, yep. Great, pretty much. And every other every problem, other problem. That humans will ever have. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the transporter was was the biggest pain in our ass in coming up with stories because you always had to find a way to disable the thing, you know, so that when your characters got in trouble, you couldn't just beam them out of trouble. You know, that would be, you know, end of the story in five minutes. So you always had to come up with like some kind of like electromagnetic interference or, you know, radiation or some, some such uh, such yeah. thing. Tachyon surge. Tachyon surge. Exactly. <laughs> It's like that in the holodeck. Like if, if if something like that screwed up as much as the holodeck or the transporter does <laughs> yeah. in our real world, like it yeah. would be banned completely. Yeah. Like, oh, the car blew up how many times? Oh, God, <laughs> recalling the entire line. I just wanted to comment. So yeah, Lisa, right. oh, oh, go ahead. Go I just ahead. wanted to comment on that last scene with uh, Robert Picardo. Uh, what a great job his doctor does in kind of representing the other because he is very other in many ways or, or hybrid right yeah uh, kind of like uh two guess. so he he doesn't you know he he's looking strangely at cassie he's like he's like why is she so upset you know like this is really cool you yeah. know or some but he just doesn't get it yet yeah well, and his programming is and a doctor's hippocratic oath i suppose but it's to just protect yeah. our life and to yeah. like in some ways cherish all life and so like he's not really thinking about it in terms of like well this was two lives previously yeah now it is one um it's just very much like a present tense form of yeah. morality yeah. And also mm -hmm. his scientific curiosity, curiosity is peaked, right? Yeah. He, he's also a scientific researcher as well mm -hmm, as a doctor. Sure. And so, yeah. Yeah, looks at this and says, ooh, cool. Now, I was going to ask you, Lisa, I was curious as we were talking about the Technobabble. Uh, <laughs> I know that, you know, you had Andre Bormanis available and, and like, so, you know, you'd write the script and you just put tech and Andre yep. would come in. Did, did, did you and the other ever get better at that? Did you start using some of your own techno babble or is it just always Andre just stepping in? <laughs> I, I think we did. I mean, once he made up, you know, sort of the, how like the transporter worked and all that kind of thing, then we could kind of use his explanation and, you know, adapt it for our own stories. So we, I think we all got a little better at it. Mm -hmm. Oh, about two Vicks. Yeah. See, he's just, I mean, she should still be in shock, but he's charming her. It's delightful. Yeah. He is charming. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, his expression, I mean, he's really evoking Ethan Phillips' performance as Neelix yeah. there. Yeah. Um, 
and his his delivery, his lines. I mean, Tom Wright did his homework. I mean, he, he, he made a unique character, but you totally buy into that Tuvok and Neelix are both in there. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's so many times that an actor or a, a writer deserved more critical acclaim, and this mm-hmm. is probably top top of the list. Um, yeah. You know, easily deserved an award. Yeah. Far more than whoever won a fucking Golden Globe that yeah. that year. <laughs> <laughs> the guest yeah, they weren't playing two characters in one, were they? <laughs> so, Jason, I know they invited the philosophers on to do a little philosophy. I've been uh, spending too much time with Descartes recently, mainly just advancing my own understanding for teaching him. And one of the things that I find interesting here, okay, so one of the most familiar tropes from sci-fi is where we presume a dualism between the mind and the body, and that allows characters Mm -hmm. to switch minds and bodies with each other. And I always like to use the example of uh, Avatar for this, because when Jake Sully's mind is transported into an alien body uh, for the first time, he just gets up off the table and runs because he hasn't had the use of his legs. Yeah. You know, first of all, I, I have enough grounding in cognitive science to know that the first thing you'd probably do if you were tra- teleported or mind shifted into a completely different alien body is vomit. Uh, probably. Your, your body <laughs> schema is not there, right? But what I wanted to come back to with Tubix is Descartes had said that the mind or spirit or soul of an individual is a, a simplicity, a simple a unity. And it seems to me like he has to be wrong about this. If uh, mm-hmm. Tuvix represents reality, of course it doesn't, but this is how we have to, how we have to parse the argument, right? Uh, that, that you could not have created a unified integrated mind as we see operating here out of two simple mm-hmm. unities that are, you know, fundamentally distinct from each other. Um so every so often it's fun in a philosophy and pop culture class to say, you know, if this episode were true, you know, what would it say about this theory that we've been talking about for the last few days? Yeah, no, you're exactly right. The taking the the what ha- the events of Tuvix as factual, yeah. um, which I do believe we're just watching a documentary that's been transmitted back to us. You know? <laughs> Sorry, Lisa, you didn't write anything. This is, this, this really happened unless you're from the future too. And you were like recording it. Um, but no, the, um, uh, yeah, if this episode's factual, then, you know, it speaks more to, you know, the theory of a personal identity we get from John yeah. Locke or David Hume, right? We're, we're just a bundle of perceptions, ideas, thoughts, and that bundle is constantly shifting. And you can have like, you know, so so think of it like the mind is like a cloud made of vapor particles. And each of those particles is a thought, a feeling, a belief. And so we kind of have this semi-cohesive bundle of of all of our mental states. And there's two vox and the other clouds and think of two clouds passing into each other. Hmm. And that's kind of how they combine, uh, it seems, in this sense. Um, there's also um, more modern theorist, Derek Parfit's theory, um, that, yeah, all that matters, all that we care about is psychological continuity, and that that's not a straight up or down, you either have continuity or you don't. It comes in degrees. Yeah. And so you can be more yeah. or less the same person over time. Um, mm-hmm. And so... Uh, 
so yeah, I, I think all those theories fit well with what's happening in, uh, in two Vicks. And I think a lot, and a lot of sci-fi tropes, as Kevin mentioned. That yeah. lock, by the way, mm-hmm. deserves uh, credit as basically being, I think, the first philosopher to actively use what we could describe as sci-fi thought experiments, right? Where he says, mm. if one person's mind switched places with their body overnight, or if a person's consciousness was duplicated, you know, he comes up with these fairly primitive 17th century scenarios. But for the time, I, I think they were remarkably imaginative and they make it easier to teach Locke on identity because he's got yeah. these ready-made stories. So one thing I want to mention, the scene, that, a couple of things in this briefing room scene that's happening. Um, one is we're already starting to see Tuvix. Like we've seen how his personality evokes Neelix and, and here's, you know, more Tuvok with the kind of science of it. And what it's showing is that he's still going to be, as, and we see later in, as the episode progresses, a valuable contributing member of the crew. Because in terms yeah. of the, the, the ethics of Janeway's ultimate decision, again, it's similar to, I think, you know, our decision Archer faced in similitude with the clone of Trip is I'm on this mission. I'm, you know, cut off, as Kevin you know, said, it's kind of, I'm kind of in this Hobbesian world and I need to make my own rules, my own law. And, um, and, and I need every resource to get this crew home. Mm-hmm. And so from that utilitarian perspective, you mentioned at the beginning, Lisa, it's not simply the two lives of Tuvok and Neelix that she's able to save, but the, what each of them contributes in their roles to the South, to, you know, Voyager. Yeah. And to yes. the entire crew. However, it's still problematized, which is what makes this episode so great because Tuvix, even though he's only one person, he does have the skills of both Tuvok and Neelix. Yeah. You know, uh, I guess the question is how does he balance both being chief of security and cooking dinner for everyone? But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's what makes him the ultimate, the ultimate man now. He's, 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 he's got the strong <laughs> side and then the more sensitive side. It's, it's yes. Confusing. <laughs> I do and think he has it's a sense interesting. of humor. Yeah. yeah. Yes, he does. Um, I do think it's interesting too when looking at uh, if if existence is purely a collection of perceptions, right? At what point does Tuvix himself become an individual outside of Tuvok and Neelix? Like, yeah. is it at the moment of, shall we say, inception? Yeah. Or <laughs> is it actually as carries on as the episode goes on like and at what point does that level of perception outweigh the life and livelihoods of, of Tuvok? Those, those are great yeah. questions I think you can kind of reverse engineer that by thinking about identical twins right and, mm-hmm. um, there's very little differentiating these two in the womb these two identical twins who are yet to be born except for their spatial and temporal positions are different in the womb, right? But then almost the moment they come out, their experience uh, is going to be relatively the same. And the question is, for somebody like John Locke, who is an empiricist, right, when when do their streams of experience start to differentiate from each other such that Mm -hmm. um, one character... Uh, one of the twins remembers something differently than the other or saw it from a different perspective. And so, yeah, I mean, I think right off of the transporter platform, uh, you have this very different character to the other two 
making or having or constructing experiences as this person. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's when he, he comes into existence. It makes it more difficult to talk about children because, you know, children take quite a while to get to the point where they have a sense of self. Uh, but fortunately, we have more and more philosophers who are taking cog the cognition of childhood and self-consciousness of childhood and pay more attention to that. It used to be that, you know, philo philosophies, philosophers only found you interesting at age 21 or above. <laughs> of course. So two, two quick things. One is I'm really sad that Tuvix has now dumped his uh, unique uniform yeah. to wear yeah. the plain old, right. you know, mustard yeah. and black and gray. Uh, I really like that uniform, but, um, hmm. but yeah, so I agree hundred percent with Kevin and I think you see that even more starkly as an illustration in the TNG episode, Second Chances, where it's the reverse situation, right? Where Riker is split into two. Mm -hmm. Because again, at the moment, you know, the transport beam splits, you have a Riker who shows up on the Potemkin and his first thought is, Ooh, I made it. I'm back on yeah. the ship. And then the Riker whose first thought is, oh crap, it didn't work. I'm stuck on this planet. Immediately yeah. they're having different experiences from moment yeah. number one. Yeah. Right. The quote so here's a little Paris Bolana pre-shipping. They're not quite getting <laughs> together yet. We got them on a mission together. Yes. <laughs> Lisa, I believe this is the same set where they filmed uh, your episode, uh, Innocence, yeah. isn't it? Probably so. It looks yeah. Similar. Yeah. Yeah. And we had sort of the the sort of plant-based, sort of vegetative jungle sets, and then we had the cave sets. You know, that kind of became all all the planets that we went to. And then I assume Voyager got the opportunity every so often, like the other shows, to film what out in Southern California. I don't remember yep. Voyager ever going yep. to Vasquez Rocks, but everybody else, it seems like. They... I don't know if they specifically went there. I mean, they went out to like Palm uh -huh. Desert, um, I think a couple of times, you know, for like in the pilot, yeah. you know, for the, the uh, Ocampan yeah. world. But I don't think we ever actually went on Vasquez Rocks. Of course, they got to go to like you know Venice Beach and Griffith Observatory and that, <laughs> yeah, the yeah, Future's End. <laughs> yes, use what you got, and you always gotta you always gotta love those times where they go to Griffith Park and <laughs> making it look like a alien world when you're just like, oh yeah, no, like Hollywood Boulevard's just like a quarter of a mile away. <laughs> or I just watched the episode um, in the flesh where mm. they go to the water reclamation plant, or as uh, as Garrett and Robbie called it, the poop factory, yep. <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> to, to be a film of Starfleet Academy. Right, yep. right, right, right. Gotta love it. I gotta say, an episode like this is kind of the, the holy grail of what we were looking for, in that it was you know, a philosophically interesting episode, but it was also a bottle yeah. show. Yeah. You know, we didn't, we didn't have a lot of locations, we didn't have a lot of guest stars, and yet it was a really good episode. And so this was always what we were searching for. Mm -hmm. Well, because when you're not, and and I don't think it's an either or, so um, if it comes across that way, I don't intend it, but when, you, when you're kind of limited from dazzling the viewers with an exotic location or a major space battle and so on, then yeah, the onus is on you, the writers to, and the actors to push the drama. Mm -hmm. Make that the thing that the viewers. Now again, you can have both of those elements in the same episode. Year of sure. Hell, probably the amazing example of that. Great character drama and big spectacle. But yeah, it's um, I, to me it makes 
logical sense <laughs> that <laughs> that a bottle show would yeah be like one of the better character uh, driven shows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jennifer Lean, uh, very understated and in in many ways kind of unique amongst the shows or at least very distinctive amongst the shows that she's not trying to project this uh this distinctive character that she's trying to build on screen i mean she she is right but she's doing it in a very understated way yeah yeah she had this great gift um for um you know, because again, she's playing at the beginning of the show, someone who is, you know, only two years old, who is, and, and it seemed like, because it comes up to nine years, so I'm assuming like one year is kind of like a decade. So she's basically playing mm-hmm. a 20 year old, like the actress's real age at that point, right? She was 19 or 20. Mm-hmm. And then, but then, you know, by this point, we're in season two, she's already like a 30 year old. Yeah. And so she's able to bring that maturity to to her character you see it develop as you know even throughout just the four the three seasons that she was on the show mm-hmm. and yeah and she's really the one kind of emotionally twisting in the wind here more than anybody uh, i mean even more than tuvix uh because you know she is as she's expressing in this scene you know she's without both of them and and they're the people that she would most lean on in a crisis yeah, and that's important to emphasize. Again, I doubt we have any listeners who aren't familiar with the series, but the fact that, yeah, obviously she was in a relationship, romantic relationship with Neelix, but then, yeah, Tuvok was her mentor, mm-hmm. and she was very close to both of them, more so than anyone else in the crew. Yeah. So the big philosophical question is, is Tuvix married to T'Pel? Uh, yeah. Right. Huh. We don't have that name. That name is not on the document. Uh, are on, on the marriage, uh, but that does that does raise another criteria for identity or for moral status that uh, we talk about in ethics classes, which is a kind of social criterion, right? Where marriage itself is a uh, religious uh, right, but it's also uh, guaranteed by the state through licensing and keeping, you know. Uh, keeping a, a paperwork about it. Um, with with Tuvix, I think a huge sense of wanting to return him to Tuvok and Neelix has to do with the weight of how other people see him and the, the mm-hmm. social importance to them, right? It's like a time travel story where someone is asked, would you go back in time and save your grandmother from dying, you know, even if she only right. had another year? And they're like, well, it might not be good for her, but it would be good for me. So let's go. You know. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure if you asked each individual crew member, they would have different opinions about what to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that does tie into to kind of fast forward to the climax of the episode. Something that, again, uh, when I listened to the Delta Flyers commentary in this episode, um, I think it was Robbie McNeil specifically sort of commented that he kind of felt that that maybe like he felt that the, kind of the whole crew turned on Tuvix like a little mm-hmm. too fast mm-hmm. that they kind of everyone just kind of stood by as he was desperately pleading for his life and maybe 
uh, and obviously you got to fit this in 43 minutes, right? So it's not a, a, a flaw on the writer's part. It's what you can do. It's, it's a constraints of storytelling in that format. But it would have been interesting if there was more of a debate among the crew yeah. about what to do about Tuvix. Really, the only disagreement you have is, you know, when the doctor stands his ground as a doctor and says, I mm-hmm. can't take right. Mr. Tuvix's life. Um, but even then, it's just making that statement other than him trying to argue with Janeway or make the case, right? Mm-hmm. He doesn't try to restrain her or stop her when she says, okay, I'm going to do it anyways. So yeah. it, it, again, it, this could have been a great two-part episode. Mm-hmm. Again, it doesn't have the space battle spectacle that most two parts have. <laughs> so you yeah. have to come up with a really good B, B plot to fill it in. But but that for the audience to experience that extended time with Tuvix. Mm-hmm. Um, again, if this was a show made today, where they make shows today, like you could have had Tuvix for like whole half, a whole yeah. half a season. Yeah. And Tom yeah. Wright, you know, as a, as this long guest star, and then mm-hmm. they realize, yeah. and then, yeah, the audience would have felt more of the tension. You probably would have had more of the crew uh, struggling with that because it, to go back to Kevin's point, it's about relationships. Mm-hmm. And if we saw Tuvix forming, say, you know, him going to the holodeck with Tom and Harry and doing Captain Proton together, then maybe mm-hmm. Tom and Harry might have been like, whoa, wait, no, no, you can't kill Tuvix, right? Something like that. Yeah. And I, I, I agree 100%. I, I, I do think, though, that, like, fundamentally, the argument is the same right like you might feel more about it at tugging at your own heartstrings but like fundamentally he's arguing at the end that he is an individual at that point and that individual has the right to exist mm-hmm. and um that argument would have been the same even if he'd been around for mm-hmm. a few more episodes now i do think though it's interesting that the fact is that like we as people in looking at other people's individual rights are usually more swayed by personal attachment. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. Um, we often don't care about the people that we have no connection to and are more than fine to turn a blind eye to stuff like mm-hmm. that. But like uh, when it's someone we know or so, you know, someone closer to us, we, we feel more, uh, uh, more connection yeah. to that event. Mm-hmm. Um, but like from a, from a philosophical black and white, you know, like a text-based view of a reading of this situation, his case would is, is identical. Oh, it's the same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think that uh, one of the reasons why I brought up uh, the, the, the kind of social impact is uh, that there, there are writers out there, particularly in the abortion debate and other debates that say, you know, this should not be the, the only reason why we consider somebody worthy of moral status, right? Is that other people, recognize mm-hmm. them or hold them up. That's not what human rights are about. You can be despised and still, uh, you know, uh, or unknown and still have rights. And that's, that's why um, fellow feeling is not the same thing as treating somebody as having rights, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But I think you're right about it being the same argument. Of course, the, the argument and, uh, that you put out about, you know, save two instead of one, I only see one here. I don't see yeah. two who are in any sort of distress or who are making an explicit demand. So this is not a conventional utilitarian scenario like the trolley problem. Jason, what? No, although Kess does express the, you know, the side of, you know, she values Neelix as an individual. <laughs> You know, and and misses him, and so he he as an individual has value. That's true, but again, he doesn't exist right now as somebody who has 
mm -hmm. uh, interests, we have to interpret his interests um, as if he were, let's say, a comatose patient, right, or something. Mm -hmm. Although you raise an interesting point, Kevin, that that isn't at all revealed in the episode. Um, you know, kind of what we, we needed 10 more seconds to find this out. So I'm curious, Lisa, <laughs> what your thoughts are. While Tuvik's, so when Tuvok and Neelix come back, do you think they carried the memories of Tuvix? Do you think when they were hmm. back, they were conscious of everything that happened as Tuvix? Or were they, as kind of Kevin said, kind of in suspended animation? And when they come back, they were talking about Tuvix. They're like, who's this Tuvix guy? Uh, what do you think was happening? I like to think that they kept the memories of Tuvix. Uh, and that, that kind of helped propel their relationship that kind of became a friendship. Um, in that they they did understand each other better after this experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I like that. I, again, yeah, we don't have the again. If this was a a modern more a modern TV show, they would call back to Tuvix. Hey, remember when we were Tuvix and so on? No. Yeah, <laughs> you, you, you didn't do that back yeah, then. <laughs> yeah. Created a monster. And yeah, here here is the sort of the whole sequence in which they're trying to get him to be friendly, you know, with the crew and and sort of finding him his place in the crew as an individual, and and making friends and sort of showing what his his own strengths are. But it is very quick moving. I mean, it, it would have been fascinating to see him stick around for five or six episodes. Mm -hmm. um, I you know I do miss this like bar set they had sandrine oh, sandrine's just in just in season two wasn't it or like it it felt like it didn't stick around very long it didn't stick around very long no they were always looking for new you know better holodeck yeah. sets for the crew to hang out Yeah, they switch they switched main holodeck scenarios like every season it seemed to me yeah once in a while there'd be a callback i believe i believe sandrine's does come back and someone to watch over me um mm. The episode with the you know, doctors teaching seven about romantic relationships. I think they yeah. they, they mm. go to Sandrine's to have dinner or something. If I remember, yeah. right, I haven't right. gotten that episode my rewatch, but yeah, but yeah, because then in season three was the uh, tropical resort, yeah, um, right. and then season four was Da Vinci's, yep, um, yep, and season five now is Captain Proton mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, God, that fucking resort. I, I did not. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we, we don't really talk about that much. No. It's, just, it's just a little too obvious what they were doing. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> Thank you, Paramount. <laughs> yeah. Keep Baywatch to Baywatch, please. <laughs> At least no one ran in slow motion. No, not that they we saw anyway. Because just like Captain Proton, right? You can set the holodeck to put you in, in black and white monochromatic. Mm -hmm. Could you right. set the holodeck to be in slow motion? Well, I'm sure you could. Yeah. I'm sure you could. <laughs> so again, this is interesting, this scene. Um, Again, whenever you watch these episodes over and over, you, different things jump out. But kind of the the doctor and Harry's sort of pleased with themselves for figuring out yeah. the problem. Mm -hmm. And and again, Kess is obviously as well, but she's more emotionally invested in getting Tuvox and Neelix back. Mm -hmm. I think for the, the doctor and Harry, it's like, 
yeah, it's like this cool science problem we got to figure out and just we want to figure out the yeah. problem. And there's yeah. an interesting parallel to that with modern medicine, especially with certain, you know, like surgeons and certain types of oncologists who are very much like, we're going to defeat this disease. We're going to figure this out. We're going to solve this problem. And again, not always pausing to think about the, the broader ethical implications. Well, and also of, just disabilities you know. communities, right, Jason? Uh, the mm-hmm. very idea that, you know, seeing is normal and blind is not means that, you know, if you're a blind person, then theoretically speaking, something about your identity is being targeted by people who are working on the causes of your blindness, right? And and, and right. the blind community is its own community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, TNG, of course, we have, you know, with Jordy and the great episode Loud as a Whisper with the, the deaf ambassador. Um mm-hmm. There's a DS9 with um, uh, what was kind of Melora, I think it was, mm-hmm. who has uh, yeah. well, she has a motor disability in our gravity, like right. from a low gravity planet and so on. Right. Yeah, Star Trek has always done a great job, I think, of 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 uh, raising some of these issues that at the time really not a lot of people were talking about. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the Americans Disability Act was passed in 1990, but I can tell you in philosophical circles and bioethical circles no one was really doing a lot of disability theory until the late nineties into the two thousands. So Star Trek, you know, in the, in their dramatic treatment of a lot of these questions was really ahead of the curve. And, and as Kevin points out, yeah, there's, they're very important and, and brings in this whole different voice uh, to it than than just the standard theoretical context. Yeah. Well, and I think it very quickly too. um, I mean, I'm not in the, philosophical world particularly but it seems like from from the writer's perspective it it transitioned very quickly into like let's then talk about like what can happen in the future when you have the ability to augment your body in any given way shape or form which Mm -hmm. kind of disassociates it from the present in a way and i I feel like that's somewhat of a bad thing because you kind of lose a lot of those questions about disability today and Mm -hmm. just thinking about tomorrow which isn't actually here yet um and uh yeah whereas like and you know star trek's always been fascinating in that it 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 there's always been kind of like a very kind of um uh, what's the right word i'm looking for kind of humans are themselves kind of already the best version of humanity right um, right and you know jordy is talked it's talked many times that jordy's kind of the only one to have a visor and you know there's not much transhumanism going on in in starfleet um the you know the eugenics uh, is is not allowed you know there's not much dna manipulation happening but it's always the tool that you can bust out if you need yeah. to, you need to yeah. fix for something yep um well it's interesting about that again this is still this is true already today that a lot of the technology that quote unquote is compensating for disability actually then enhances one's abilities, right? Jordy can see better than the rest of us can. He mm-hmm. just sees different with his visor. And of course, without the visor, he cannot see. Um, right. You know, uh, think about, um, like, you know, uh, the runner Oscar Pistorius setting aside the whole murder mm-hmm. stuff. Um, but mm-hmm. the fact that without his natural legs, with those blades, he was probably a higher performance runner, right? Mm-hmm. He was enhanced with that technology. And yeah. so, mm-hmm. yeah, that line between you know, disability and if one's using it, restorative technology and enhanced abilities, it's on a spectrum, right? We, it's very difficult to draw 
strict lines in between those. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get yeah. into transhumanism enhancing people who are actually fully functional, you know, and who don't need a limb replaced or who don't need, you know, their sight enhanced. But, you know, can you make somebody see even better or be even smarter? Yeah. Well, data, I, I do. I do want to. I'm, I'm so sorry. Okay. This is all yeah, super yeah. fascinating. I do want to kind of loop it back to two. Yeah. <laughs> really quick, there are other episodes we can talk about that stuff more fully. But like Absolutely. what we just saw in in the episode is is Tuvix is making a case that we've heard from things like Measure of a Man or whatever else, where he is justifying his own individuality and he is saying like, because mm -hmm. I think maybe Janeway and some of these other people are trying at this point to say like, well, yeah, but Tuvix isn't a real person. So it's it's okay for us to get rid of him. And and Tuvix did make the case, which is like, you can't know that. I exist in the same way as other individuals exist from your perspective. So yeah. therefore, I must have individual rights. Yeah. And, Janeway's and, and as that, he, he can make a decision. You know, I, I choose not to sacrifice myself for these other two people. Right. I mean, and, that, and the, the very point that you just made, Lisa... Uh, sparked the thought going all the way back to the original series devil in the dark mm -hmm. when the horta says no kill i mm -hmm. asserting mm -hmm. that that uh, kevin alluded earlier the first person perspective yeah. that it that you know you're dealing with something self-conscious intelligent autonomous capable of making their own decisions right and mm -hmm. that's you know the general grounding for individual rights and so so yeah, he's he's Tuvix is doing a good job making the best argument that he can. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then, essentially, when he appeals to Kess, you know, to approach Janeway, you know, it's she was the natural person for him to go to again as this combination of Tuvok and Neelix. Mm -hmm. You know, he's probably thinking. He's not thinking, oh, Kess really wants Tuvok and Neelix back, so she won't be on my side. No, I am Tuvok and Neelix. I love Kess, mm -hmm. both as a mentor and so on. And so, of course, she would want to stand up for me. And it's yeah. just interesting how he completely misreads her at that, you know? Yeah. Um, Honestly, I think a lesser episode too would have had it where Tuvix is is more nefarious or something. You know, they try to like give more of a yeah. justification for getting rid of him. I think it's such a great bold move to say like, well, Kess is actually kind of better off with Tuvix. You know? <laughs> like the crew, in some ways, is benefited by Tuvix's uh, uh, existence. You know, being able to be both uh, incredibly logical but also incredibly emotional yeah. now, and you know, it's not as simple as just like, oh, Tuvix is back and he's acting kind of crazy now. So we need to, <laughs> to solve the problem before uh, he kills someone or something like that. But Yeah, that would be one easy way out. And the other easy way out would be to have him voluntarily sacrifice himself and be yeah. very noble. Yeah. Which is, again, spoiler alert, what Sim did in, in the Enterprise episode Similitude. Mm -hmm. Um only after Archer made clear that if he didn't, he's basically going to order, he's going to pull a Janeway, you know, <laughs> it's like, I'm, it's going to happen anyways, but yeah. So yeah. So this is the scene. Yeah. Where again, I know again, Robin McNeil kind of specifically kind of felt like, Oh, yeah. it would have been nice if at least one of us kind of sided with two Vicks and we had a little dramatic in between the crew. Yeah. yeah. But again, we're getting close to time and you got to fit in all those pesky yeah. commercials. So <laughs> I, I also just love Tom Wright's performance here. I mean, I think yeah. it would have been lessened if people had been like talking. During That's <laughs> true. Been like, come on, captain. Why, why do you have to be that way? It's just, you would have lost <laughs> his kind of reeling here at the end, which is great. 
No, that's a great point. And there's not a chase. I mean, I like that too. Like another episode, yeah. you would have seen a chase. He would have gotten a phaser, blah, 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 blah. But instead, it, there's this, this somberness yeah. to it. Um, the and this line right here, telling yeah. them you're all good, good people. Like he's, he, he's separating the decision that's being made from the character of the people that's making them. Again, like I said at the beginning, I... From the, from the very first time I watched this and what would have been, what, 96, I guess, mm-hmm. um, I was like, Janeway, you know, you, that you've made the completely unethical decision, but mm-hmm. I still love you, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, because it's so not clear cut, I mean, because it's, I mean, even she isn't convinced that 100% that it's right, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. I also would wonder if maybe she actually knows that what she's doing is wrong. But like mm-hmm. she knows in kind of the Machiavellian tradition of just like, I need to do the bad thing here because it's going to yield the best results for, for everyone involved. You know, like everyone else isn't capable of making this decision. So I'm going to make it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that's where I think Janeway differs from all the other captains. It's like, she's okay making the tough calls. Picard definitely wouldn't have done this. Um, Cisco. I mean, I guess we've seen Cisco do some, some mm-hmm. crazy things in the past. But I don't think even he would go this far. Although he did like bomb an entire Maki planet that one time, but what it's, well, um, yeah. it's, uh, it, uh, you know, this is, um, I, I think this is a very uniquely Janeway moment right here. Well, so I think it also fits into her general goal of getting the crew home. Yes. And that to her, the crew includes Tuvok and Neelix. Yeah. Well, specifically Tuvok. I mean, she didn't pledge to get Neelix home, but you know, that she has these two crew members that, you know, whatever has happened to them, she still feels responsible for them. Yeah, I think like uh, for the crew, you know, this this is her family and, and she's going to do whatever she can to protect that family. Anyone else is kind of expendable. Mm-hmm. Um, or yeah. not expendable, but secondary, I guess. So. Yeah. No, I think that's right because in a later episode, I think it's Scorpion where Chakotay basically calls her out because, you know, they're debating about whether to make this compact with the Borg or, you know, give up. And, and Chakotay says, you know, your, your desire to get this crew home blinds you to mm-hmm. what might be the prudent choice. And so yeah, I never thought about this moment in the light of that, but I think Peter, you're exactly right. Um, that that's driving this. And also to answer your question about, you know, does Janeway know what she's doing here is kind of wrong. I think Mulgrew's, line delivery we're just about to see answers that question she doesn't she's not happy when she welcomes them back yeah she's flat yeah you know right here yeah yeah that's great there is a goof here though is that neelix should not be in uniform yeah very true well it's because they didn't dress them back in the uh the fancy the, Ooh, the mixed fair. up uniform okay. you should, no, you should say, yeah. you know, strap them that. down change clothes yeah. I'll, t- I'll take well, that. I'll take yeah that. i don't know if janeway knows what she's done is wrong but this is clearly a tragic moral situation right in which Oh yeah, you, you see that last look on her yeah, right there, and that's to me it, it reads yeah. as haunted, like it reads as clear. Oh yeah, um, she knows there was something something off with that. Ooh, and the next episode's really good too. Well, um, <laughs> well Kevin, so Kevin was just talking about tra- yeah tragic moral situations. So you know, in ethics, we talk about dilemmas, right? And a dilemma means that you have you know two rules or more. It could be a trilemma, a quadlemma, right? You have 
two moral principles that are coming into conflict, right? You can't satisfy both at the same time. And what some ethicists will say is, and honestly, probably most ethicists would say is, there is a right answer. There is a resolution to the dilemma. We might debate and disagree about which side of the dilemma should win out, but there is a objectively right answer. But Hmm. some ethicists, and actually one of my grad students is working on this right now, on this question of true moral tragedies, where the dilemma is actually irresolvable. And you just have to accept that you're going to make a decision and you... And, and either decision will have some justifying reasons, but no one of those is overridingly the best decision or the unequivocally right decision. Um, I think I would agree with that. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think, that, yeah, I think if anything, yeah. like and, and again, those, good. those situations are good for Star Trek because they end up being mm-hmm. crucibles for characters. And we're going to, you know, obviously one of the lessons of two Vix is, you know, watch out for Janeway. I mean, you know, on the frontier there where she is but um yeah i mean there there is no there is no clear uh way to win i i might note that if they had really tried hard they could have maybe figured out a way to duplicate tuvix like they did accidentally with Riker, and then separate neelix and tuvix one of them (laughs) and then get the best of all Hmm. possible worlds but that again raises all kinds of questions like don't i own my identity you know i'm the only yeah. one who could right so why does this tubix guy get to parade around with half my identity or something like that yeah. or why tubix one does but tubix right. two doesn't yeah that's right yeah 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 and how much does this all come back to the idea too that like morality isn't something isn't an objective truth at all it's just created by whoever's in charge at the time and yeah. so like you have janeway here and yeah she might be making up her own laws out there but she's the only one who's going to do it yeah, yeah. What is- although although from a character perspective it is interesting because again it's this isn't serialized but there is continuity of character right over time mm-hmm. and and janeway often is very in- insistent that, no, we're going to follow Federation rules, right? right? We are a Starfleet crew. And I think, again, this is a, was a very non-Starfleet uh, decision that she made. That being said, I don't think that's a, a flaw in the writing or like an inconsistency. Humans are inconsistent. Yeah. You know, and, and if there's any, again, there's no explicit callbacks in future episodes, but we might think that some future decisions Janeway makes, you know, kind of returning to, we're going to stick by our Starfleet ideals, she might be thinking back to the, the, a decision like this and saying, I, I can't make that decision like that again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, of course, it's it's questionable what Starfleet's directive would have been here. You know, if she had asked Starfleet, what do I do? You know, they would have had the same debate and, and who knows what side they would have come down on. Mm-hmm. We've seen some pretty crazy Commodores out there, guys. So I'm just yes, we have. This could have gone sideways real quick. <laughs> All right. Well, that was a fantastic discussion. Um, I, I believe, for my money, though, I'm still on the side of uh, Janeway. Janeway pulled the pulled the right decision, uh, made, made the right call there. Um, Lisa, what do you think? You still uh, still standing by Janeway there? Yeah, I I really think that her first duty was to protect. The, the two crew members that she had assumed responsibility for. Yeah. Mm, sure. I mean, that is the captain's first, first prerogative, isn't it? So, yeah. Um, yeah. There you go. 
Uh, Kevin, Jason, it sounds like both of you guys are still yeah, on the, uh, still I'm, on the I'm, side I'm, of. We've still have nothing <laughs> to dissuade you. So the idea um, that uh, the crew was better off with Tubix than they were with Tubox, Tubox, and therefore they should have left them, let him, let him live. I would definitely say Kess was probably better off with Tubix. Yeah. <laughs> That, yeah. uh, uh, you know, although by the time you get to season three and end of season three and four, it's Kess is kind of waking up to the fact that maybe maybe she's better off with yeah. someone else. But um, yeah, but uh, anyway, guys, uh, what's uh, what's new? What's happening? What's coming up for you guys? What's uh, what do you got to plug out there? <laughs> um, well, I mean, the, the one thing Kevin and I have done together and, and you know, to mix genres earlier this year, we released our third edited volume on star Wars and philosophy. And we, we have been pushing our publisher to, to green light a third star Trek and philosophy volume. I think maybe the popularity of the latest season of Picard, strange new Mm -hmm. worlds, you know, we keep, every couple of years we come back to them. The last book we did, I think it came out in 2016. So yeah, we're mm. seven years away from that. And there's obviously been, I mean, that book came out before discovery before anything. So we'll, we'll, we'll make another pitch for that. Um, I did just propose uh, fingers crossed. It gets accepted with a couple other colleagues, um, a DS nine themed panel for the upcoming Las Vegas oh, Star Trek yeah. convention. We did one last year with um, on medical ethics in Star Trek, and we actually got uh, John Billingsley, Doctor Flox, to join yeah. us on stage. Okay. And nice. so hopefully they'll accept this uh, DS nine panel. So if anyone listening, if it gets accepted, we'll hopefully find out hmm. this week. And you're going to be in Vegas. You know, come check out our panel. That's awesome. Well, I know that uh, I'll, I'll I'll be at the convention. I don't think you're going, Lisa, but like no, I'll, I'll be in Vegas, uh, not not hosting anything, but just sort of chilling out, doing the doing the fan thing. So if uh, if you guys see me or if any listeners out there uh, see me, feel free That's to say hi. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, um, I guess uh, let's wrap it up then right there. Um, if fans out there, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter at uh, TrexpertsBR um, or on Instagram at TrexpertsBriefingRoom. We'll be uh, Posting behind-the-scenes uh, images from the episodes we covered, as well as uh, news and updates about upcoming episodes. Um, so, for at least Clink myself, I want to say thanks for being here. I want to thank uh, Mark Altman and uh, everyone over at the Inglorious Trexperts uh, podcast feed. And until next time, um, the briefing room is now closed. <laughs>